Hey there, viral listeners. This is Quinn. Lindsay is out this week, but we did record the interview portion of the podcast together, so you will hear her in just a few minutes. Viral is a podcast about the field of public health. We research the historical context of public health issues like plagues, old-timey quackery, and more importantly, what people did and continue to do in order to keep us safe and healthy. I am a local public health worker with an interest in the strange, morbid history of this field and how we do it today. We are dedicating this show to everyone out there who has ever battled addiction or knows someone battling addiction. Humans have used, and yes, abused, substances throughout our history. From the tobacco plant and Native American cultures to opium dens of the 1800s, people have figured out ways to escape from their often bleak realities through the form of medicinal or non-medicinal uses of drugs. The 20th and 21st centuries have made this issue even more serious as pharmaceutical companies have perfected the science of delivering precise amounts of a drug to treat a particular condition, like pain. But other, more nefarious forces out there figured out that they could use the same precision science to deliver the perfect high to their customers. It's a complex issue with many different factors, from overprescribing pain medication at the physician level to overdosing at the patient level, to over-advertising at the marketing level. No matter what the cause, we are left with many people using substances like pain medications, and yes, alcohol, to self-treat underlying psychological or emotional stressors in their lives. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, also known as SAMHSA, About two-thirds of Americans, ages 12 and older, reported that they drank alcohol in the past year. Also, the use of illicit drugs has increased over the last decade from 8.3% to 10.2%, comprising approximately 27 million people. For reference, that's 7 million people more than the entire population of Florida. The same can be said for those who are estimated to have a substance use disorder. That number is about 21.5 million people. Americans, constituting only 4.6% of the world's population, consume 80% of the global opioid supply. So clearly there's an issue here. However, we can sometimes get lost in these colossal figures, and forget that we're talking about human beings. Mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and friends. I don't think kids say to themselves that they want to grow up to be an addict, but it happens. And the more we can do to remember that we are talking about other people and think of it as a disease, the closer we are to finding a humane and logical solution. Anyways, that's enough of me talking. Let's get to our interview. Now you will hear a couple of personal stories from people in recovery. 
Enjoy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Every September, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, also known as SAMHSA, sponsors Recovery Month to increase awareness and understanding of mental and substance use disorders and celebrate the people who recover. The annual theme is Join the Voices for Recovery, Strengthen Families and Communities. Recovery from mental and or substance use issues is a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live self-directed lives, and strive to reach their full potential. Today, we are going to talk to some people about their journeys. Welcome to Viral. How about we get started with some introductions? My name's Quinn, and I'm a co-host of the Viral Podcast and a public health professional. I'm Lindsay. I'm also the co-host of Viral, and I also work in public health. My name is Monica Russo. I coordinate the Alliance for Substance Abuse Prevention. I'm a good friend of Lindsay's. I'm excited to be on the show. And uh, I am also a public health professional. My name is Tony. I am a mother of two beautiful daughters who just entered middle school, which is a very scary time. <laughs> and um, I am a recovering alcoholic and addict. My name is Kelly Walker. Um, I am also a mother of one beautiful daughter named Maya and um, soon-to-be stepmother of Emma. And um, I'm a social worker by trade, um, and I also work with Alliance for Substance Abuse Prevention, and I am a recovering addict and alcoholic. Okay. Um, So we wanted to bring you all here, and thank you for coming, to help uh, talk about the personal issues related to this topic and also then kind of discuss how those issues are um, are reflected in the population focus because when pu- public health we talk about things on a population level but with something so personal like this it would really behoove us to start at the personal level so we kind of wanted to hear um, your story. Um, I don't know, if, you know who wants to start first, but we thought, you know, can you tell us a little bit about um, yeah. how you're here? I can start. Um, again, my name is Kelly. Um, I guess my story is a little bit different than what I hear um, people in recovery. A lot of people, um, their bottoms, I guess, typically end with jail time. Um, for me, my bottom really started when I was, I don't even know if I should say this, I was working for the sheriff's office myself. Um, I was a child protective investigator and um, dealing with a lot of trauma from my past. I entered this field when my daughter was about six months old and um, I saw a lot and I never really had time for my brain to catch up with what I was seeing, I guess. Um, There was a lot of trauma involved in that uh, field of work, as I'm sure a lot of people know. Um, And when I left that field and I started slowing down, all of those thoughts started catching up with me. And like I said, I was still dealing with a lot of trauma from my past. Um, I was in several abusive relationships in my early 20s. And um, so I guess uh, through a series of doctor's visits, I was started on a lot of prescription medications to cope. Um, that became my coping mechanism, and I really wasn't processing anything at that point. 
Um, so I'm trying to think. Flash forward a couple of years, I had my daughter. I was able to stay sober throughout my pregnancy and pretty much my first two years of my daughter, well, the first year or so of my daughter's life until I guess those, those feelings and those emotions started catching up with me and I couldn't block them out anymore. Um, I remember a specific time and I was in the shower and I don't know if you guys are like this, but I think mm -hmm. when I'm in the shower and I was washing my hair and it was the morning after, like I had a pretty bad hangover and I remember just zaps of kind of feelings and, and thoughts and, and like it was pretty traumatic. And I remember thinking, I can't ever let these come to light. I cannot, I cannot let these feelings out. And I remember thinking that I'm never going to be able to get over this, you know? Um, so my bottom really happened probably around that time, maybe about three months later. And my husband at the time, he was a paramedic and he was really insistent on me going to get help. Um, at my bottom, he took me to the hospital and I had a blood alcohol level of 0. 0.36. Oh, wow. I think 0. 0.40 is legally dead. Oh, and man. I remember <laughs> he was thinking that like I just had some really bad anxiety and I was going through some stuff and I was having a break because he also understood, I guess, that first responder lifestyle and he knew a lot about PTSD and he's like, she's... She's losing her shit, basically. You need to help her. So he took me to the psych ward. And when the psychiatrist came back, he said, you know, I really don't think anything is wrong with her, but she's an alcoholic. And he had no idea that I was even drinking. He, and the doctor came in the room and he said, you're sitting up, you're having a conversation with me. If someone had this blood alcohol level, typically they would be running into walls and throwing up, you know? Um, so a few weeks later... I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I can't explain what happened. I didn't go to a detox. I didn't go to treatment like a lot of people did. I detoxed at home, so those two weeks were terrible. They were terrible. Um, but when I walked into my first meeting, I remember hearing these people talking, and they weren't necessarily talking about drinking. They weren't necessarily talking about using but the thoughts that they were talking about that were inside of their head were things that I had thought my whole life. And I never thought anybody thought like that before, if that makes sense to any of you guys. I felt at home for the first time in my life. And I knew that I could be myself, you know? Um, so for the first six months or so, I decided that I wanted to work on myself and not work in social work like I was working before. I, you know, I, I say this a lot, but... I always wanted to help people and I never knew how to help people until I faced those demons that I needed to face myself. And once I figured that out, um, about six months later, I started part-time in social work again. And uh, you know, my job now is working in substance abuse. It's prevention, but it's substance abuse. And I know how to help people today. You know, I helped myself and I got to work on myself and I really feel like I've found my calling at this point in time in my life. Um, it's been about two and a half years, and in recovery, they say that your life catches up fast. And when I say it caught up fast, you know, it, it caught up fast. Uh, things happen, and they happen quickly. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, grateful today. So that's a little bit about me. I'll let Tony go ahead and go. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, Tony. Yeah. Shaky. <laughs> so I'm, my name is Tony. I am a mother of two daughters, like I said. Um, 
I uh, entered recovery um, almost three years ago. January will be three years. Um, I am the child of an alcoholic. Um, I was born with uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, um, which wasn't discovered at that point, but later symptoms arose um, that kind of led physicians to determine that. Um, I grew up thinking that alcohol every single day was normal. It was the norm for my mother, who I'm the youngest child, and at, at the age of six, I knew how to mix her drinks. Um, I knew that when she walked into the house, I had to have a drink ready for her. Um, and I thought that was normal for the longest time. Um, I thought it was normal to drink at 15, 14, 15 years old. Um, and that's about when I started to drink. Uh, now they say that you, you're, you stop growing emotionally at the age you start using or drinking. And that was the age I started. That's the age I started using anything I could get my hands on to cope with um, emotions that I didn't know how to handle. Um, I experienced sexual trauma at the age of 10 years old um, that, that, that went on for several months. Um, and it was never discussed. I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I wasn't um, taken to therapists to sort out my feelings. So I was just left in this, I felt like I lived in a closet my entire life. Um, in order to escape my mother's abusive behaviors, I thought that leaving a change of scenery would be the right thing to do. Um, so I left. I moved 1,200 miles away um, to be with someone I met on the internet, of all places. Um, and as unhealthy as that relationship was, it was still a different unhealthy than what I was accustomed to. Um, had children, I started using other drugs, um, pain pills, um, antipsychotic medication, anything that I could find that would help me not feel because I didn't want to feel. Um, I, and, and it's a progressive disease. They say that all the time. It, this is a progressive disease. I, um, when, it, when a psychiatrist wouldn't treat me, I would find another one that would help give me a new you know, miracle drug that would help me not feel when I started to develop feelings of, of uneasiness. So um, my daughters were both diagnosed with ADHD and um, I started abusing their medication. Um, and it really, I saw what, you know, we would run out of their medication and I would say, I don't, I don't know what happened. Um, my marriage wasn't great, obviously, um, because of my using, and he, he drank and had anger issues. So um, I ended up leaving with the intention of taking my children with me. Um, but when I left, I didn't have a job. I didn't have income. I had nothing. I had no place to go. Um, so I ended up staying with a friend, and I kept my girls with me for about a week until I realized I couldn't afford to take care of them. Um, so I let them go back to their dads, and I had met someone else already because I needed someone to take care of me. So um, at that point, as soon as I, I met him, 
we started, he introduced me to several other drugs, um, and it, it progressed quickly from there. Um, but my drug of choice, I mean, can I say my drug of choice on here? Of <laughs> my, my drug of choice ended up being crack cocaine. Um, and when they tell you that you get addicted immediately, it is the absolute truth. Really? The very first hit, I, w- I had found my true love. And for me to actually say that the drug was my true love and not my children destroyed me for a long time. And I, I, so I kept using, so I didn't have to feel that. Um, I ended up on the streets in Tampa, um, walking the streets, begging for money, telling people all kinds of sob stories um, that my children were taken away. They weren't taken away. I gave them away. Um, I stopped having contact with my children because my ex-husband saw how much of a detriment I was to my children's emotional well-being. Um, So um, the guy I was with ended up getting arrested, and I was literally on the streets by myself. And I realized that something had to change. I couldn't keep doing it this way. So um, I called my mom, who at that point had been in recovery for 12 years approximately. She, she got clean and sober when, after I left. So me leaving was good for her, bad for me. Um, and it took several phone calls to convince her that I was ready to change my life. And um, she came and picked me up, drove an hour and a half to find me, and she's very directionally challenged, so... <laughs> It, it was a miracle she actually found me. Um, but when she saw me, the shock and horror on her face, because I had lost 75 pounds in probably six months. Whoa. It was wow. mm-hmm. incredible. I didn't, I mean, when you're doing that, you don't care about eating. You mm-hmm. don't care about anything but your next fix. Um, so the guy was in jail. I came to my mom's house. I didn't go to a detox or was never treated medically. I did it all at home. And I didn't sleep for days mm-hmm. uh, coming down. So I stayed busy. I took a toothpick and I cleaned between the slats on our wood floor. Um, I scrubbed the tile in the, ba- in the bathroom and the kitchen with an old toothbrush. I mean, anything to keep me distracted. And I thought I could do it alone. I thought I didn't need any kind of support because at that point my mom wasn't attending meetings so I thought that that's the way it should be once you got a little time under your belt you didn't need meetings and that wasn't the case because he was released from jail and I was working I wasn't working a job I thought I was working on getting my kids back and that wasn't the case Um, but he got out of jail and the moment he entered my property at my mother's house we were back on the streets and it, thankfully, it only took me six days to realize what I had done. Um, I left him in Tampa and went back to my mom's house. And as soon as I walked in the door, I said, Mom, I need a meeting. I need help. I can't do this by myself. And at my very first meeting, when I walked in, they knew that I was terrified. There was a large women's meeting. There was probably 40 women there. And I'm not the type of person that's very friendly with women. Mm-hmm. You know, you always wanted something from me. Like my sponsor says, you want my man, you want my money, you want my drugs. Um, obviously, that wasn't the case there because I had none of those. <laughs> so um, this woman looked right at me during the meeting and said, because I had introduced myself, my mom made me do that. And she said, if no one's told you today that they love you, I love you. And I'm 
I'll love you until you can learn to love yourself. And I just looked at her and I thought, how can someone love me, this broken, homeless addict that has absolutely nothing to give? But I kept with it. I kept going to meetings and um, my they, they had this... They have this thing called the promises that we read at the end of the meeting, and um, it says that you know you'll uh, you'll be amazed before we are halfway through. Right, you you learn to handle situations that used to baffle you, and that that's never going to happen for me. But they made me read it every single time I was at that meeting, and and then I started seeing things that that were happening. I went to court, um, I sat before a judge, and I told her I have a problem. I'm working on a problem. I have a sponsor. I go to this meeting meetings. And I'm in a safe place, exactly where I need to be. And um, within a few months, I got shared custody of my children. Mm -hmm. And I, the very day that the judge said, yes, you can see your children, I went to their school. And at that point, I hadn't seen them for 10 months or spoken to them on the phone. And they were 9 and 10, 8 or 9, somewhere around there. And when they saw me, I thought that they would hate me because I hated me. And they were so happy to see me. It just, my heart melted. And I realized that what I'm doing is exactly what I needed to be doing for them and for myself. So um, I continued going to meetings. I, I take the girls with me to meetings. They call the, the, the people at the meeting the recovery family yeah. because we are a family. Um, Kelly's my best friend and, you know, they, they, they want to see her and talk to her all the time. And she works with youth a lot, so, I mean, it's, it's good and healthy for them. Um, my ex-husband didn't trust me for a long time, and rightfully so. Uh, and I felt a resentment towards him because, you know, I didn't understand. I, I was clean and sober. Why shouldn't I be able to have my kids? But he was protecting them, and I totally respect that now. And now we have a working co-parent relationship, and that's great. Um, once Kelly became involved with ASAP, I um, she asked me if I wanted to be part of a, a a committee that would help plan a an event, and I said, "Well, sure. You know, I need service work, absolutely." So um, she began the the committee, and after the event was over, um, we all discussed it and decided that that's something we really wanted to continue. So I was nominated as the chairperson which is a totally new concept for me because I've never been in charge of anything. I've never been good at anything because I've never completed anything or or had the drive to want to do anything for myself to actually get recognition. Um, and I don't do it for recognition. I do it because we help people. We, we want to see... I want to see others not follow my path necessarily, but find their path and live a healthy, happy life. So I coordinate ASAP. So Tony is the chair of one of the committees within ASAP, and she might not have ever had any kind of responsibility at that level, but you'd never know. She does mm. a pretty kick-ass job. She really does. Um, but can you can you explain the event that you guys designed last year? It's the first of its kind in Pasco County, and it was yeah. So amazing. Uh, last year um, for National Recovery Month, we decided to actually put on an event um, ASAP primarily in the past focused on prevention-based mm -hmm. efforts. So we did a lot of prevention things, but we never really embraced the recovery community. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, it made sense. Uh, prevention and recovery go hand in hand. You know, you need people in recovery 
to carry the message of recovery, to show that it's possible and to reach out. Like for me, I work with youth and I go into schools and some of my youth at 16 and 17 years old are already in recovery. I'm there to teach prevention, but this is happening younger and younger. This is really an epidemic. This is uh, a generational thing. It could be genetic. It could be, you know, nurture and nature, I guess. So, um, we embraced, you know, the recovery community and we did a, a national recovery month event and it was at Newport Ritchie Public Library in Pasco County and it was the first of its kind and we maxed capacity the first year. Um, people showed up from the local clubhouses that we're a part of. They were happy to help. And I think it's important to note that these are people we're taught to always do service work and like Tony said, to never say no. Um, it's a spiritual-based program, and Tony and I were actually at a meeting this morning, and somebody eloquently put it, we were very self-centered. And when we're thinking self-centered, it's self-centered. But when we're thinking about other people, and you know, I'll throw in a spiritual term, it's God-centered. And we're taught to be God-centered and spiritually-centered, um, and helping other people gets us out of our own problems. Mm-hmm. So they came, and they came in droves, and they were ready to help with whatever you know, we wanted to help with, and then we had vendors from all kinds of different um, service providers in the area, detoxes and um, local schools that embraced the recovery community. It was it was really wonderful. We had speakers, we had music, we had open mic. Um, state representative. Yes, we state had. State <laughs> representative came and gave an address. You know, so this, was, this was last year. This was before mm-hmm. this was, in my opinion, being done, uh, let alone in, in our county. And uh, we had a congressman write a letter uh, supporting recovery, and we had a state rep come and give an address. And, and a proclamation. And a proclamation was given mm-hmm. from our county. Um, to honor people in recovery and recognize it for the first time as a chronic disease and to celebrate recovery. We celebrate people who survive cancer. We celebrate people who survive all sorts of chronic diseases, but we don't do that for people in recovery. So that's what this month is about, and that's what these two started um, designing last year, and it snowballed into this huge thing in our our county. Um, So now we have a committee dedicated to trying to make our community one in which people in recovery can thrive. And, and really I think it's also important to note that this year's ASAP conference, the entire, co- we have a conference every year, and um, it was centered around National Recovery Month and in National Recovery Month. So that was also an experience that, uh, when I say it gives me goosebumps to see that happening, it is amazing, you know, to see all of these local decision makers coming forward and, uh, you know, police officers and people that really are a voice in our community Acknowledging out loud that this isn't just some sort of moral failing, that it really is a chronic and reoccurring illness disease, a progressive disease, like Tony said. I mean, that is, I don't know if I can explain to you guys how validating that truly is. Absolutely. I had some of the kids in recovery come up to me after and say that's the first time in their lives that they didn't feel alone, that they didn't feel like... You know, they, they, I mean, that brings me to tears. You know, they could talk about these things out loud. I had two girls come to me after and say that they had these problems and they wanted help. Mm-hmm. And they knew now who to talk to. That's prevention and recovery working together. Mm-hmm. You know, these are 12 and 13-year-old girls that came up to me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and one girl had been using meth for the, for the last month at 13 years old because it's in her house. Because her, sure. she was, you know, she, she grew up in that kind of environment. Um I don't know. That was just an amazing experience. And, and I think that's important. We to don't know. tell people who get the flu 
and miss work and miss school or whatever that well you you deserve to miss school and feel terrible because you chose to got the to get the mm-hmm. flu um that's just not that doesn't make any sense and so like you mentioned before the changing the culture and the mindset of substance use and abuse as a disease and less of a moral failing um, is, I think, really important. And I've heard a lot, it might be disease, but it's a disease you gave yourself. And I mean, I don't mean to be vulgar and graphic, but we don't think that way about STDs. It's still a disease. You know, if you're thinking... We used to, but we've made progress. You know, like HIV and AIDS was was very much um, a moral failing for, you know, over a decade. Which stymied, which you know, progress on trying to address it. Exactly. Which is very similar to That's exactly right. And when we're talking about the opioid crisis, you know, people are starting to say it's at epidemic levels comparable with the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. And more than that, it's the moral failing component that is also equivalent to the AIDS epidemic. And so having recovery months and things like this surface as that first indication that we're starting to see momentum change, you know, that we're seeing people viewing this as a chronic disease. We don't, we know that obesity and uh, type two diabetes is caused by not eating well, Mm -hmm. but we don't say you don't deserve medication Mm -hmm. or treatment because you ate poorly. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we give insulin to people regardless of how they eat. Yes, you should eat well. Yes, you need to exercise but you need your insulin too. Yeah. We don't just not see patients because they eat poorly, but that's what's going on and, with people and who relapse. The, like they're the not getting treatment. And what about the price of healthy food versus unhealthy food mm-hmm. and the advertising yeah. and the, the exposure and the mm-hmm. environment that we that we live in? The food desert, um, you know? What about that? Is that a choice? This is so, this is so <laughs> exciting that you're saying this because this is this. I'm a doctorate student. This is what my my interests are in. We we know as public health professionals that if you have diabetes, if you have chronic disease, if you go back to a home that's in a food desert, you don't have fr- fresh fruits and vegetables. You don't have sidewalks. You don't have a safe place to play. You don't live in a safe area. Your home is filled with junk food because your family or your neighbors eat all of that food. You are not going to be successful with your disease management. And right now, our idea for people living in recovery is you just went to a residential treatment. I'm going to go, you know, go back to your home and live successful lives. Well, where are they living? What is your home life like? Can you get a job? Do you have economic uh, mobility? Do you have social support? Who is your social support? We don't. We are, we are not thinking that way. We're, we're, yeah. still, we're still only thinking of and substance use disorders right. from a clinical perspective. And public health talk about it is very much, oh, well, what medication do they need? How do we increase policies to get them the medication they need? But what is their environment like? That's what yeah. I really should right. I get it if they have a criminal record I and need to find housing and, and need to find employment. Yep. I mean, that it, it's a whole other obstacle. Exactly. Because the criminal, you know, having a criminal record, I mean, my goodness, what a barrier, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that and and a lot I think that was one of the barriers too to understanding, you know, um, substance use as a disease, right? Because if it's a moral failing, then we need to use law enforcement to correct that. Mm-hmm. You know, and not that law enforcement isn't important, right? But, you know, getting kind of out of that mindset I think has been really helpful and you know, and for both of you, you know, obviously this is a public health podcast and, and we are talking more about prevention, which is very exciting. And talking about recovery, if you want to think about that in prevention terms, that's really more secondary and tertiary prevention lights, right? So but I would argue also primary because like Kelly was saying, she has students who are going home to families that have substance true. use disorders. So that's if true. we can keep people in recovery and prevent them from relapsing and keep them yeah. in a successful 
life uh, full of opportunity, that decreases the risk of their children and the young people in their lives from ever engaging in substance use to begin with. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. So to our, I guess, public health um, professionals, like what would you say to somebody that works in public health for them to understand what it's like or... what would you say to them as somebody who's in recovery, who works in social work? <laughs> what do you think you would say to them to get them to understand the importance of, you know, how your story impacts public health? I'm going to let Tony go first with that. I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I, know. I, I, I have the answer for you. Okay. Um, you. You once told me what it was like to have that one officer speak to you a certain yeah. way. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, Oh, my mind just went blank. So when I was living on the streets in Tampa, um, they have, in Hillsborough County, they have a homeless initiative. Mm -hmm. So three, maybe four officers um, traveled around and, and, you know, they would do outreach and and whatnot. And um, this, this officer came up to me and she'd seen me several times. And that was the very day that I had decided I needed to get help. I needed mm-hmm. to go home. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any change to make a phone call. I didn't have a cell phone. They had one pay phone within probably a two-mile radius that I used to frequent. And um, I approached her and said, you know, please can I have some change so I can call my mom. And she looked at me and she saw my face. She looked at me. Usually when you encountered people, they didn't look at mm-hmm. you. They looked through you or they looked at your what you are wearing and and, you know you have to realize that these people are human too she that lady saved my life that day she saved my life because if i didn't get help that day i was going to go off the deep end even further than i already was Mm -hmm. so treating people with substance use disorder like they're human is paramount because once you you start to to demonize the the person with with these issues they will be afraid to speak up Mm -hmm. absolutely I, i believe that wholeheartedly yeah and i think the stigma is a big thing too and the way we refer you know it's funny because the way we refer to ourselves in meetings i identify as if i'm in an aa meeting hi my name is kelly i'm an alcoholic hi my name is tony i'm an addict or and i'm an alcoholic Mm -hmm. um if somebody else in the street called us that, we might ne- we might not necessarily take it the same way. You know, mm-hmm. like I could talk to Tony and, and use some slang, but I think really just changing the way we talk about I'm I'm Kelly and I'm a person with a substance misuse disorder. My doctor that I see now, she has my entire medical record and she has it listed as a chronic disease in remission. That to me was validating. You know, ch- changing the way that people talk to alcoholics and addicts, changing the language. Mm-hmm. Changing um, the language yeah. of changing. a really great article written about that. Yeah. yeah. People with addiction, people mm-hmm. struggling with yeah. the chronic disease mm-hmm. of addiction, mm-hmm. people in recovery. It's kind of like people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. your disorder, your disability does not define who you are. So I have a question, um, and it, it just kind of illustrates my, my ignorance of um, the system and, and how um, recovery works. What organization or what group hosts the the AA or the recovery meetings? Is it is it a nonprofit? Is it a for profit? Is it a church or is it a government? Like no. So 
12-step philosophy really began with AA. So, I mean, are you, like, where do meetings take place? Yeah, or, I mean, like, how how is that system? I think a lot of the listeners don't know what 12-step is either. Okay, so... Yeah, so maybe we could explain uh, what 12-step yeah, is. Yeah, um, 12-step philosophy really began... Oh, man, I want to go on a history lesson here. And, and please do. 1920... Well, it started with the Oxford Group, which was kind of a group that... Do you want to explain a little bit more about the Oxford Group? We were just talking about this this I morning. I don't remember about the Oxford Group. So it started with a group called the Oxford Group, and they had these steps to help people um, recover, basically, to get sober. And um, in the 1930s, Dr. Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob and, 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 and Dr. Bill Wilson came together. They, uh, Bill Wilson was a New York stockbroker, and he had went to one of these Oxford Group meetings as a... Um, alcoholic, and he had what he claimed to be a sort of spiritual awakening. Um, he worked with a doctor called Dr. William Silkworth, who kind of worked with him through this. And the doctor noted that he wasn't quite sure what happened, that he dealt with a lot of hopeless cases of alcoholism. And whatever happened to him, he should spread that message far and wide because he had seen so many hopeless cases. So he came across another doc, another doctor with an alcohol problem himself, and those two kind of started what was the first days of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, in 1936, Alcoholics Anonymous was founded by doc- Dr. Bob. I always get Bob and Bill mixed mm-hmm. up. By Bob and Bill. <laughs> and um, they kind of started what were known as the 12 steps. And the steps are literally just steps that we take to recover. Um, those steps now can be applied to anything. They started with alcohol. They can be applied to any sort of addiction or anybody can really kind of walk into a 12 step meeting if they want to apply those steps to their lives. Um, there's NA for narcotics anonymous. There's overeaters anonymous. There's, there's GA for gambling. Yes. Gambling anonymous. And there's um, even a cocaine anonymous. Cocaine anonymous. I mean, those 12 steps have been applied to a lot Tony, do you want to go over the steps? <laughs> no. No? Well, or, or list one of the steps. But like, what do you like, as an AA example? AA and you NA are self-supporting through their own contributions. So yeah. we're not funded. We don't accept outside donations. We donate within the group, and we we do everything within You're ourselves. You're like a self-sustaining community. Absolutely. That's yes. really Absolutely. cool. So any event that you see that's hosted by AA or NA, it's... Because people have contributed, not outside people, but our own That's people. Incredible. I was just curious because a lot of times yeah. public health programs, they're funded either by academic institutions or government funds or grants or things mm-hmm. like that. And sometimes those funding streams are, they can fluctuate, which then affects membership, which then, mm-hmm. so it sounds to me like, like this system is its own independent. It absolutely group. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there, are there benefits or drawbacks to have it being in an independent group? So that was a whole thing too. And I, I don't want to get too much into the politics of it because I'm not that familiar with it, but there's a reason why, you know, I, I think things started happening that usually happen where, uh, you know, when a group of people come together and, and one person wants to generate money in one way. And so there's, we have not only the 12 steps, but we have what are called 12 traditions. And that kind of guides us in the way um, we handle, you know, business affairs and the way we govern um, really ourselves as groups. And one of those things, when we had the conference, you know, we had NA and AA there and we can't put their logos, we couldn't put their logos in our, in our conference agenda because we don't advertise. We, it's, it's promote, not promotion, 
not we, we just don't promote in any sort of way. So it's attraction, not promotion. That's their... And I knew I was going to misquote that. But Monica was asking what some of the 12 steps are, and I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't misquoting anything. So the first one is really just admitting that we're powerless over something um, and that you have an unmanageable life, that our lives have become unmanageable. And then two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Again, like I said, it's a spiritual program. It doesn't have to be a God that anyone, anyone certain person identifies with. A lot of people... Like in an organized religion. Type yeah, absolutely not. Spiritual, not religious. The only thing we're told is that you cannot make another human the God of your understanding because mm-hmm. we're humans. We will ultimately fail you. Mm-hmm. So then made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. And four is where a lot of people kind of fall off. (laughs) Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. This is difficult because you really have to dig deep into your trauma. You know, this is (laughs) right. And if you think about it, any person who owns a business, if you want to think about it like this, you have to take regular stock and inventory of your business in order to be successful. It is the same thing with our lives. You know, we have to be able to do that. And when you don't do that for so long, and like I told you guys, I numbed and I didn't deal and I didn't let my emotions out. You have to really go back and take an honest inventory. You, you do. And, and then painful. it really it's is. Yes. It really, really, but that step is a lot, is where a lot of people fall out of that because they're afraid of that. You can't, you have to learn how to walk into and face your trauma embrace it and live with it and you know that's not an easy thing to do it just it really isn't and nobody in a 12-step program is going to tell you that that's all you have to do there are lots of people that need extra help i get counseling i'm on an antidepressant today you know there are there are chemical imbalances within me too and every human being is so much different it's the way I started and it's the way I got sober and, and clean and it is what I attribute every success in my life to today. Mm-hmm. But everybody is different and it's not sure. the only way, you sure. know. Yeah, I think that's important to note. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the coolest things, or one of my suggestions rather for people in public health is to go to one of the open meetings. Oh, this sure. isn't something that's we good. ever, ever think about. It's not no. something I ever thought about. I work in the field. <laughs> I work in the field there and I'm a doctorate chair. student in yeah. public, health. public health. And Kelly had to say, hey, you know you can come to this, right? I said, no. Oh. Uh, so I went. And uh, a couple times. Yeah. A couple I t- times. I got to tell a funny story about the first time Monica went because oh, we have do. 12 Uh-oh. traditions. And she immediately goes, can we take pictures in here? This is amazing. This group, there's like hundreds of them meeting and I don't know about this. And I said, you absolutely cannot take pictures yeah, in no, here. Yeah. Not yeah. even in the back of your head. Yeah, I thought of it. The word is anonymous. Uh, right, but like, when it, but like the, the 12 steps. Like you want to take pictures of that because uh, to me, it resonated with me. You know, it's it's not just for people with addiction. It is relatable to a lot of people. So not only going to a meeting can you learn more about something you probably don't know much about, but it's it's it it's very relatable, and I think it really helps bridge that understand or that gap that this is a them problem mm-hmm. versus yes. this is something so relatable to me. I was anorexic and depressed in college, and the twelve steps were very relatable to me, and I had a very emotional time, and I loved it. I cried a bit um but it was really good um so that's why i was just so i was so impressed because i was never told hey do you want to go to an alcoholics anonymous when i was severely anorexic and depressed 
Um, but I think it would have really helped. So that's why I wanted to take it. She's like, no, you can't do that. Okay. okay. Well, and again, the 12 steps aren't, like, again, just not used for alcoholism and addiction. They would have been very applicable to an mm-hmm. eating disorder. And Al-Anon is a group mm-hmm. that pe- uh, people who know an alcoholic or an addict, so, you know, our families, they, they say recovery is a, is a family thing. It's, it's a family disease. So, so alcoholism, any kind of addiction is a family disease because when people are used to one person that we had been for so long, I mean, this disease starts before we put a substance in our body. It's a brain disease. Okay. So we're, we're thinking different our entire lives and we're acting one way and we have these family members who are used to us. And then we start applying the steps to our lives and doing these things and changing, they get a very different reaction. And they're like, who the heck are you guys? Like what? We're not used to, it's a confusing time. I went through a divorce because my ex-husband who was very, um, he was very used to the codependent person he had to rescue and he loved that person and he had no idea how to deal with a whole healthy woman with a career. You know, he was like, where are you all the time? Why do you have to put so much time into recovery? But my point is, is that those 12 steps can be used for just about anything. They can be used for the family to recover too. It doesn't, I'm, so they, they would, they would say that they were powerless over us. You know, they can't control us or they can't do these things that they used to do. And we're not reacting the same way. It it just is applying it in a different manner. So we really appreciate your, your candor and your, um, your stories. And I want to, zoom out a little bit and try and look at the the issue from a population level and now um monica what are some population level strategies to look at this issue is it anything related to um you know advertising or the um access to health care or mental health services or what what are some things that that are going on in public health from a population perspective? So I can't actually answer what's going on at the... Well, I can. Okay, so right now there's a really big movement for medication-assisted treatment. Uh, There's been a lot of bipartisan acknowledgement that this is a chronic illness that needs to be addressed with with a public health approach instead of just a criminal justice uh, approach, which is great. Um, So there's been the 21st Century Cures Act and the CARA Act, which have really pushed... How do we help people recover? How do we get the treatment that they need? So medication-assisted treatment has been highly backed by a lot of literature, scientific literature. So this is not, I don't think this is being articulated very well uh, in, the, in the community. A lot of people are learning medication-assisted treatment to be a drug that people with addiction take to help curb their addiction tendencies. So this is buprenorphine, this is methadone, this is naltrexone. What they're not understanding, what the general public really isn't understanding is that it's medication-assisted. That's just one component of behavioral health counseling right. and it's, it's a, and wraparound services. That's just one component. Because right. it is so a complex disease. It is a very complex. It's, it's like, yes. again, it's like diabetes. You might need your insulin, but then you also need lifestyle changes and lifestyle uh, environmental changes. So that's kind of the approach that, uh, the, that is supposed to be coming uh, from all of these initiatives at, among the federal government. Um, so that's all very promising. I will say in Florida... 
it really doesn't go that far if we don't have access to health care. Yeah. Uh, these are very expensive drugs. And, of course, we're in a non-Medicaid right. expansion I was state. Right. I say that, yeah. So, I mean, and, and everybody says, um, well, not everybody, but when you talk to doctors about uh, people with addiction, you know, they'll often say, I don't have that population. Mm. So, <laughs> yes, you do. You do. Um, and everyone, every, right. it doesn't discriminate according to, to income, but there is a group of people who do not have health care you know, right. who, who cannot get this, this treatment. So it's, a, it's, if you are a single male, you know, who, who's not, you know, high income, you, what do you do? Like, how yeah. do you, how do you go to a doctor? How do you get medication assisted treatment? How do you, how do you do all these things? So for somebody that does have health insurance, mm-hmm. I mean, how, what is the likelihood that, it, that, um, this would be covered by health insurance? So certain things are, so, um, methadone is covered by Medicaid, um, as well as if other insurance, right, right, right. And other insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, there's a lot of talk about, and I would have to look at all my reports about the cost of things. I know that there's issues with costs and that there's constant negotiations with buprenorphine and naltrexone um but private insurance covers parts of those um okay naltrexone is very very expensive there's currently a really big uh, initiative within the state to provide it for free uh for two mm-hmm. years for certain oh, populations wow. okay but again that's two years what's yeah. going to happen in two years when that federal funding runs out well what so are they going to do it's interesting because you know uh, we had talked about the comparison between this epidemic and HIV, mm-hmm. right? And, and HIV has a federal program yeah, that so funds mm-hmm. medication, Ryan White. primary care. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, Ryan White. used to do HIV case management on those. Me too. Yeah, yeah, did you? Yeah, okay. yep, here in Pinellas. And um, so, and we still have it, which is amazing, right? Because this type of funding was started, I believe, in the 90s. Um, and Ryan White yeah. died. Yeah, yeah. exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, and that kind of approach, you know, it, it's definitely shifted, right? Because with the Affordable Care Act, the way that, um, you know, Ryan White was always meant to be payer of, uh, or the basically the payer, the last payer, mm-hmm. right? So you're supposed to, if you can get health insurance, if you can get Medicaid, if you can get Medicare, you need to get those first before you tap into right. Ryan White. So I think it would be interesting to, if somehow something like that was duplicated for absolutely addiction, like a reoccurring yeah funding source, because right? they do you know they have emergency services right so yeah. and that includes testing, uh, making sure that you know PEP and PrEP are available for people that have you know uh, occupational exposure that sort of thing. But then they also have case management, mm-hmm. right? They have like I said primary care and the biggest piece, which we all know is. The cost of medication it's astronomical, right? And so, um, so yeah. So, I think it would be. I think that would be a really interesting proposal to policymakers to say, "Listen, you know, there's a lot of parallels between the two of these, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stigma, but there's also a lot with, you know, trying to cover all these different forms of prevention, whether it is preventing somebody from getting, you know, getting into or you know, acting on addiction." to, you know, helping those in recovery because we have those same issues with people with HIV, medication adherence, making sure they're not transmitting HIV. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to kind of look at both of those things now that we're starting to see it mm-hmm. as a disease rather than a moral failing. So, and I'll say, I, I know we're probably running out of time. There's so much to say. I know. So much to say. <laughs> um, is that, you know, we, we talk about addiction kind of in, in waves of whatever drug is really trending. Mm-hmm. And we just don't talk about addiction as itself. 
It's addiction. Sure. So instead, we have all of these funding sources just for opioids. Yeah. Oh, yes. but back up. Now we have all of these funding sources just for alcohol, but it's it's addiction in general, and they they often need the same resources. But when you start applying money that's targeted only for one drug, it's just it's just not very helpful. Yeah. Um, and you sometimes know, it's, people it's use multiple multiple substances. drugs. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, right. So right. Not people are using right. multiple so, drugs. Right. So yeah. We, we you know there's all these prescription yeah. drug monitoring programs. If you want us to come back on the show, we can talk about all sorts of policy oh, things yes. going on. <laughs> um, but we have we have all of these strategies that um, you know we when we say that we want to crack down on opioids, we created you know prescription drug monitoring program so we can find out you know who is overselling or who is over-distributing doctors who are over-prescribing drugs and who is over-searching for them. And we did a really good job at that. And so you know what? Opioid access through pills has gone down, but you know what has gone up now? Heroin. Heroin, because we're still we're still thinking of these things as one drug. It's I'm whack-a-ball. going to. It is whack. I use this word oh. all the time. Yeah. It, you, you attack one, but you're not getting to the root cause. Exactly. And so this is where public health really can come into. This is what we're we are trained to figure out how to do. And this really hasn't, in my opinion, been done well enough yet. We're still trying to play whack a mole, and we're surprised when another drug surges up. Um, we're not getting to the to the root causes like adverse childhood experiences yep. or economic yes. inopportunity or, Absolutely. you know, not having um, education opportunities, like all of these things, social support. Which are all your environment, right? endemic, not necessarily even endemic to Pasco County, but mm-hmm. you think about rural America, mm-hmm. those are all things that rural Americans deal with, right? I think I remember a few years ago when um, our state attorney general went after the pill mills and, mm-hmm. and, and then some people seemed to be surprised that heroin and meth and mm-hmm. and all of those things started to go up afterwards and it's like well yeah you're not you're not well, looking at the the, the issue the, the base right. issue which is how people are managing their stress mm-hmm. or their uh, people who have an addiction mm-hmm. if you take away one thing well, they're going to so, find something it was else so fu- it's just so, so funny like we'll take away the drug and then everyone will be fine no like, no no, no. like everyone is searching for something else or if and you this punish people harder yes that yes. it'll frighten those who and probably there's a two percent that would be frightened away from it or whatever but that's not going to cause it's not going to solve the mm-hmm. Uh, the root cause. I mean, and we know in prevention that scare tactics don't work. They mm-hmm. just, they just don't. Yeah. You and like to think that they do. We're like, yeah, this will work. It makes sense in my brain, but in practice, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, it, just to kind of switch gears a little bit, at the end of um, every episode, we we kind of try to lighten it up a little bit, <laughs> and we uh, we talk about things that are that we're enjoying right now. So whether that's a book, a TV show, something in pop culture. Um, so. We'd love for you to share. I'll start with you too. Oh, go ahead, Tony. Um, my oldest daughter is in marching band. <laughs> um, she's in eighth grade, but she marches with the high school at Tarpon Springs High School. Oh, cool. So I have become a band mom, which <laughs> nice. is a totally new experience for me because I was never involved in band. I was music, but not band, choir, all that. Um, so it's very tiring. Um, but it's also very exciting to watch my daughter become responsible because she's not been very responsible in the past and to watch her grow and, and develop her musical talent. And she's incredibly talented, not just with her trumpet, but she plays ukulele and oh my gosh, uh, she taught herself she's how to play so amazing. she's 13 wow. and she sang, she writes songs and she wrote a song for, um, wow. a friend of ours who passed away 
uh, for her young from son. A drug overdose, yeah. 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 And she wrote a song for the, the baby um, and told him, I don't want to cry. Um, <laughs> but it's just watching my children grow mm-hmm. and become tiny humans yep. with personalities, with <laughs> awesome decision-making skills. Hey, that's good. Proud. Amazing. Yeah, I can echo on that. I'm very gracious that I get the opportunity to watch my daughter grow and to be there for her when I was not there for her before. Um, and I mean, I was there. I was a shell. You know, I was there. But, you know, to keep it lighter, she just started Montessori school. Um, she's in kindergarten. She is loving it. She's she is a little so cute. kinesthetic learner. Oh, she's hands-on. She's so cute. Um, and one thing that I'm really enjoying lately, um, again, it started with something dark. Tony talked about one of our friends who passed away. I... I've always loved to write, but I started really kind of writing more seriously to get through some of my grief, and I've had a few articles published on a recovery website Whoa. called Reach Out Recovery lately. Yeah, nice. I just, another one was published this morning, and I was excited when I was driving here. Well, she was driving, she was driving. I was trying to look at it, yeah. Oh, but it is, well, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm sorry. Um, but I was, I, I get excited about that, because ever since I was in high school, I've loved to write, and I've, I've always been too self-conscious about it to really put it out there. You know, I'm, I've written for myself, but I've never really showed my writing to anybody else. And so it's been an amazing experience doing that. Can you, awesome. can you send us a link to that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. 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 Oh, Shout that's outs. sweet. Guys. Yeah, Thanks. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I can do that. My thing I've been enjoying lately is working with these two people. Um, I, you know, I referenced my um, depression and stuff earlier and uh, you know what, what really resonated with me with 12 steps is, is this concept of service. And, um, more than that though, I, I keep myself well through service, but through empowering other people. And when I first started working with Kelly, she did not like speaking. No, she did not like <laughs> speaking in front of people. Uh, she would ask me all the time, you know, just like just lot, lots of, um, you know, just lack of faith in herself when, you know, I, you know, I can see what you're capable of. And Tony, very similarly, is very shy. And they're both now empowering other people in recovery and young people. And that's like that 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 feedback loop for me keeps me super happy. And, that's great. And very fulfilling. So thank you both. Um, for me, I am reading a fantasy novel by Patrick Rothfuss uh, called... The Wise Man's Fear. It is the, the sequel to uh, The Name of the Wind, also known as the, the King Killer Chronicle. It's just my nerdy fantasy novel I'm reading now. <laughs> I kind of like that. Awesome. 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 It's really good. good. Nerd is the new that. black. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. This this could be like the net this could probably be the next Game of Thrones if uh, oh, really? if somebody were That's to adapt exciting. it. I it recently started watching Game of Thrones. The idea started right here one. on viral. <laughs> That's right. If someone wants to adapt this, I had the idea first. You had the no. idea. <laughs> um, I just finished reading Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Uh, and this was kind of uh, started by a trip recently to Savannah, Georgia for a, a bridesmaid, or I'm sorry, a bachelorette party. And. Um, it was really good. I, I really did not know what to expect. Someone said it, it's about a murder. And I was like, okay, you know. But they're like, but it's really lighthearted. And I'm like, I don't understand what that means. It's about a murder, but it's like lighthearted. I'm so confused. But 
Um, it, it was really good, and it was um, especially good after being in Savannah because there's a lot of like yes. they're really good with imagery, and um, so now we're the there's a couple, basically the bridal party all read the book, and now we're going to have like a southern night of like oh, grits cool. and stuff and watch the oh, movie because there's a movie mm-hmm. with I think Kevin Spacey and Jude mm-hmm. Law oh, and fun. yeah so uh, that's what I have been enjoying I've also been enjoying The Defenders on Netflix yes right I'm on episode 2 so it's excited. so it gets so good I I loved Luke Cage yes I and loved, Jessica Jones yes Jessica Jones was incredible Daredevil was great. Mm-hmm. I'm still kind of on the fence about Iron Fist. Yeah, me too. I, I was that was like the weakest link to me. But them together has been very good. So the Defenders is great for your you know nerdy comic book peeps. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been enjoying. So that's the end of the show basically. And we'd like to thank you all again for you know being on the show and sharing your stories and for the amazing journey that you both have made in your in your recovery. Um, I think it's so important to share, you know, your struggles and also just to give, you know, people working in public health a human view of the statistics and epidemiological data that they work with because it's very sterile and we really yeah. need to re- remind ourselves that there are real people that have real stories that are impacted by the work that we do and that have so much to give as well, right? And we're humans just like you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So... So thanks again. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, we're really excited that you all joined us. So, All All right. Thanks. Here's today's public health fact. Did you know that in the early 1900s, particularly in the American South, millions of people suffered from a crippling dietary deficiency of niacin, also known as vitamin B3? The condition is known as pellagra, and it can be very unpleasant. The effects include skin scaling, lesions, heightened sensitivity to sunlight, insomnia, nerve damage, and even death. Niacin deficiency has caused more deaths than any other nutrition-related disease in American history. The most common theory for this one is because the corn that Southerners consumed, which is typically rich in niacin, was previously ground on a millstone which preserved nutritional content. When this process became industrialized, flour became much more refined in order to prevent spoiling, which it did. However, it also removed a lot of the nutritional value and the niacin, causing thousands of deaths over time. Once fortification of breads became possible and mainstream in the 1940s, this epidemic vanished. Thanks for listening to Viral. For more information about our show, visit www.viral-pod.com or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ViralPodcast. Finally, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know we are on the right track and guides new listeners to the show. And as always, please remember to wash your hands. I'm